Our first reading is from St. John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 1 to 17 and 31 to 35. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, You called me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is the word of the Lord.
the epistle to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Let us pray. Come among us in your holiness, O God, we pray, and grant that through your word we may behold your glory. Amen. I hope you won't be shocked if I tell you that I might find it very difficult to reply if somebody were to ask me, do I believe in God? Well, the reason for that is that I first need to know what idea of God the questioner has in mind. The silliest thing in religion is to suppose that we all worship the same God. We may all say we worship God, but in truth, we all worship our own idea of God. And ideas of God differ so much from the childish notion of an old man with a long beard up in the sky to the vague assertion that God is the life force in everything. Here's what a Christian minister named Robert, Robin Myers from America said in an interview recently. I think of God in non-theistic terms, not as a person. It was when I first felt completely alive that I first experienced the transcendent mystery that is being itself. I felt no separation from it, but it infused every aspect of my consciousness. I think that statement identifies him as a pantheist, that is, someone who makes no distinction between the creator and the creation. So even though he purports to be a Christian minister, if he were to come up and ask me whether I believed in his God, I would have to tell him, no, I don't. To say that God is not personal is to refute the whole biblical revelation and to reinterpret everything that Jesus said about his relationship with his heavenly Father. If we accept what Jesus says about God, 
if we accept the idea of God in the mind of Jesus of Nazareth, we're committed to believing in a deity with personality, existing outside and beyond the creation itself, though active in its creation and preservation. Our reading from John's Gospel just now says that Jesus knew he had come from God and was returning to God, which meant leaving this world. Now, some spiritual traditions which accept this very real distinction between God and the created order conclude that we can know nothing whatever about God. How can you find and know a being who is beyond all that we can detect? You find that in some Hindu theology. And former Christian missionaries in Africa found tribes which believed in a creator God who was so far off he had nothing to do with them. So they worshipped and placated the local and ancestral spirits who were much more likely, they believed, to interfere in their affairs. Back in the 18th century, there were many clergy in the Church of England who believed in deism, which held that the Creator, having made a universe which obeyed various physical laws, left it to run itself without any further involvement from the deity. Today, science is discovering many exciting things about our universe and how it began. But it can never give an answer to the question of why it exists and any investigation of whether there is a creator outside this world and universe is beyond the scope of scientific investigation. You remember how when the Apostle Paul went to Athens, he found there an altar to the unknown God. I suggest it was there not because the Athenians, having built temples to all their gods, thought it advisable to include this one in case they'd left anybody out. I don't think it was an extension of their polytheism so much as a recognition that the power behind the existence of creation was ultimately a supreme mystery of which they knew nothing. Well, Paul told the Athenians, what you worship as unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. What gave Paul the right to pronounce upon this greatest of all mysteries? It was because, as he wrote to the Corinthians, he had found the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he believed, reveals God to our human understanding faithfully because he is God incarnate, the Word made flesh, God with us in terms we can understand. Paul wrote to the Colossians that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself to his creation. So in Jesus Christ, we do find God within the creation, 
yet he has all the authority of God over the creation. To quote Paul in Colossians again, By him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now pause for a moment and ask yourself, what would, what would you expect such a supreme being to look like, to sound like, to behave like, appearing on this earth? Would you not expect a being of such supreme majesty and terrifying power that no one could stand before him? Would his appearance not have reduced all human voices to silence? Would we not be dazzled by his glory and overwhelmed by the mystery of his presence before whom no one could stand? In fact, as we know, Emmanuel, God with us, wasn't like that at all. He came in obscurity. He was born in poverty. He spent time as a refugee. He grew up in modest circumstances. And he was gentle and humble in heart. Fully accepting that role of suffering servant, which Isaiah had prophesied about, the one who was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. Just now we read Paul's magnificent hymn to Christ's humility in his letter to the Philippians. Being in the very nature of God, he did not, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And the phrase there, made himself nothing, literally means in the Greek that he emptied himself. That is, he divested himself of all those trappings of divinity and majesty which would have made it impossible for us to see the perfect example he was giving us of how humans should live. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, wrote Paul. And tonight we remember how at the Last Supper Jesus laid aside his garments to wash his disciples' feet, just as he laid aside his robes of glory, which were his by right as the Son of God. We read how he stooped down before each one, just as he stooped from heaven to a needy world. And as he lifted each dirty, dusty foot and took its weight, he prepared himself to bear the weight of our sins on the cross. As he touched each foot and washed and cleansed it, he joined himself to each one and brought them into communion with himself. 
making them fit to share in his kingdom. Unless I wash you, he said to Peter, you have no part with me. Now, we often see in this passage in John's Gospel a pattern of what a human being should be like. And indeed, Jesus himself said, I have given you an example that we are to serve each other. But in this stooping at his disciples' feet, he also showed us what God is like, stooping in love to reveal a world soiled by sin. In all the suffering and brokenness of humanity we see around us, never ask, where is God? In Jesus, he's rolled up his sleeves and taken on the burden of putting things right, cleansing and renewing all that has become soiled and filthy. John tells us here that at the Last Supper, Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And is he referring there to the washing of his disciples' feet or his readiness to go to the cross? Well, of course, it's both, because the scene in the upper room that night foreshadowed what was to come the next day. Not only by washing their feet, but even more clearly by offering and giving them bread and wine at the meal. Jesus showed through his sacrifice they could receive the forgiveness of their sins and be made one with him forever. Here, the unknowable God comes right in to the familiar domestic setting of people washing and eating and makes himself known in the breaking of bread. The tremendous majesty and power which formed the universe, the blazing purity of that light which scattered the stars, is here in the midst of our, <coughs> in the midst of our homes, our friends, our cares, our needs. And he acts as a servant. And so tonight, as we come to this sacred moment in Holy Week, when you and I also are invited to communion with our Lord, let us worship, let us give worth to this understanding of God shown to us in the life of Jesus Christ. As John says, no one has ever seen God, but, thanks be to him, the one and only Son who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Amen.